Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up later in the show, I will be discussing cybersecurity with Michael Chertoff, the former U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security. In China, they are now working on a proposal for a social credit score, including who your friends are and what they do, and they will decide if you're a good citizen or a bad citizen. That begins to make 1984 look like a nursery school rhyme. But before that, this week has had the announcement from Jack Ma, the founder of the Chinese e-commerce giant Alibaba, that he will be stepping down as the firm's chairman a year from now to concentrate on other causes. From its humble beginnings in an apartment in Hangzhou in 1999, Alibaba's rise, and Mr. Ma's along the way, is a symbol of the success of China's own internet and economic boom. His announcement, therefore, makes it a good time to look at his legacy and ask the question, Could China ever produce another story like Jack Ma? To discuss this, I'm joined on the phone by Stephanie Studer, The Economist's senior China business correspondent. Hello, Stephanie. Hello, Ken. So this must be huge news in China. What was the reaction to it? Yes, it has been big news here. For investors who've been watching the company closely, it's perhaps been not as big because Jack Ma had been distancing himself from the day-to-day running of the company. He stepped down as CEO in 2013. But of course, for hundreds of entrepreneurs here in China, for whom he is an icon, a, a symbol of success, I think that this was you know, a surprise, a shock, and people expect, however, that he will remain in the public presence for many years to come. So how is China now compared to the China 20 years ago that gave rise to him? And can we see another figure with such a meteoric rise? Part of the reason why it'd be difficult to see another Jack Ma is because China has simply changed so much. When it started off in 1999, China hadn't yet joined the WTO. It was just gearing up to do that. In the almost 20 years that Alibaba has been operating, middle class incomes have risen dramatically in China. The internet expanded and really Alibaba has been able to capitalize beginning first in e-commerce, but now expanding out into so many areas of the economy, be that finance, healthcare, even insurance. And that too, of course, makes it more difficult to imagine somebody creating a business so disruptive that it would have the stature of an Alibaba. Is he still considered an icon for aspiring entrepreneurs or are others taking that mantle? still very much considered an icon. I think it's partly because of the sort of figure that he cuts. He has been unusually bold and charismatic for a boss in China. Obviously, he has skillfully worked with the government, which is essential to doing business here in China, certainly when you get as large as Alibaba. But I think he's also been able to push the boundary sometimes a little bit. 
And when he speaks on stage, many will remember certain quotes that are then memorialized and inspirational for entrepreneurs. But of course, there's a new rising generation in China now, a younger generation of founders who have started their companies only within the last five to 10 years. And so in some ways, their business models and the way that they manage their companies may start to become more relatable for a younger generation of aspiring entrepreneurs. Do you think there might be more restrictions on these new generation of entrepreneurs? I think that's almost certain, and it's probably the greatest obstacle to seeing another Jack Ma rise in China. When he started off, the government was concerned at the time about companies that were growing so disruptive. Since then, it has caught up in understanding what it thinks it needs to regulate. And now under Xi Jinping, the current ruler, it wants to have a say early on, much earlier on, in the development of important businesses. And even Alibaba itself is feeling that. It has been difficult for its fintech offshoot, Ant Financial, to grow in the way that, that Jack Ma was hoping it would. And then there are newer technology companies, for example, ByteDance, it was only set up in 2012, which has already gone so far as to apologize to the government for certain content on its apps. So it's definitely a changed environment now. Stephanie, thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Babbage from The Economist. I'm now joined in the studio by Michael Chertoff. Michael is a former American prosecutor who was the U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security from 2005 to 2009 and later went on to set up the Chertoff Group, which focuses on security and risk management. He is with me now to discuss his latest book, Exploding Data, Reclaiming Our Cybersecurity in the Digital Age. Welcome to Babbage, Mr. Chertoff. And let me start off right away. In a world of algorithms and artificial intelligence and using data to try to target where attacks might be, could we paradoxically find ourselves more vulnerable because people who have a lifetime of experience making these sorts of decisions aren't going to be making these decisions, computers will. I don't think computers actually should be allowed to make the decision. But what a computer can do is this. In the vast treasure trove of material that exists out there, of data, no human being can go through it all. So what artificial intelligence can do is it can separate things that require a closer look from things that don't. Now, at that point, when you're making a decision about taking that closer look, I think judgment matters. And that's when human intuition and judgment makes a difference. I'm a little skeptical of the phrase artificial intelligence because to me, intelligence is more than analytics. Analytics is part of it. But judgment has to do partly with experience, partly with intuition about the way other human beings operate, and partly with the blend of perception, experience, and intellectual understanding that most of us develop over a period of time. If you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, human beings over millennia evolved to be able to take a lot of disparate data, not just what they hear or see, but what's in the background, behavior, all kinds of things, and meld that into a judgment about whether someone's trustworthy or not. It may be that at some point in the future, a machine will be finally able to do that. I just don't think we're there yet. I'm still a believer in intuition as uh, kind of the secret sauce of what makes human beings human. 
Now, in your book, you make the point that personal information and the cornucopia of data that's around people now is becoming a larger threat to people than the military threat that's existed in the past. Explain what you mean by that. Well, having grown up with the intelligence community and collection of information through various kinds of surveillance, whether it's video or audio, I recognize, first of all, that generally the kind of surveillance the government is conducting and the information it wants is relatively narrow. But more important, it's very heavily supervised. In the United States, and I I think probably in the UK as well, you have judges who oversee the entire system. And in the US, for example, if you want to actually listen to content, you have to get a warrant, and it's not the easiest thing in the world to get. The private sector collects a huge amount of data without judicial oversight, and they're not collecting it in order to protect you from a bomb. They're collecting it in order to sell you something. And what really underlay one of the reasons I I focused on this in the book is I don't think people have any clue as to how much data is generated about them. Yes, they understand that when they get on a social media platform, they're giving data up, but they don't realize when others on their own social media platforms are taking a picture of them or writing about them, that's also being accumulated. And these days, it is not only possible but likely that all those disparate pieces of information can be collected in one place so that somebody has the opportunity not only to monitor what you voluntarily put out there, but what others put out about you. So you sound a lot like Christopher Wiley, the whistleblower of Cambridge Analytica. I don't know much about the whistleblower, but I I would say, and I wrote the book before Cambridge Analytica, I could see over time that first as a commercial proposition, but then maybe in some respects as a political proposition, that data was going to become, as some people describe it, the new gold. That's really where the value is. And in particular, what started to intrigue me is the idea that the collection of data could be a way to actually pressure you to do things. In China, they are now working on a proposal for a social credit score. And what that will do is accumulate exactly the kind of data I'm describing, including who your friends are and what they do. And they will decide if you're a good citizen or a bad citizen. And if you're a good citizen, you'll get better housing, better job, better education, and vice versa if you're a bad citizen. That begins to make 1984 look like a nursery school rhyme. What does one do about the potential for government to collect this information and for state surveillance? The first question would be, well, what would be meaningfully workable in a place like China? But the second one would be, how could we find constraints that the middle class, the sort of mainstream public could accept in Western democracies? Well, I think in terms of government activity, you're actually seeing interesting changes already. In the U.S. Supreme Court, they've had cases in the last few years that for the first time required the court to confront the new technology in the context of the old law. And, you know, the old law, which goes back to English law, used to be every person's home is their castle. It was property-based. And then when you got technology like telephone and you had wiretapping, it became broader than your property. It was about what you expected to be confidential in a reasonable sense. But one rule that was always true is if you did something in public, the government was absolutely free to surveil that and collect it. And that's begun to change. So the court has now said, for example, that if you want to conduct ubiquitous 24-7 surveillance of someone in public using technology, like something like you might attach to a car or video, at some point, it's so pervasive that you have to get a warrant. 
just as if you were going into their house. This past year, the Supreme Court held in a case called Carpenter that if you want to get locational data generated from a cell phone to the provider, you have to get a warrant for that too. And the court is really beginning to recognize, which is what I've argued in the book, that sometimes the technology is so revolutionary, you can't fit it into the old law you have to redo the law. And that's, I think, where we're going now. Now, I'm very inspired by those reforms that you're, you're citing because I think from the point of view of the judicial protections, we're seeing this meaningful modernization of the rules. At the same time, the Snowden disclosures made a lot of people uncomfortable because we thought we had a really good system of oversight and rules-based order in which we gave a lot of power to the intelligence community but they had to operate under constraints. And it seems like they didn't follow the constraints in the way that there was a public expectation that they would. Actually, I think they followed the constraints more than people realized. Part of the problem was that we didn't make clear, and I think this was frankly a mistake on the part of the government, exactly how thoroughly supervised this is. When they finally declassified the court opinions that supervise these programs, you saw the judges were quite meticulous in holding the government's feet to the fire. You have to separate two things out because a lot of the, the um, what Snowden put out was a little confusing and sometimes he blurred the lines. The government had a very broad right to collect metadata, which is basically the device you're communicating from, the device you're communicating to, and maybe the length of the communication, but not the content. And that's very useful, by the way, for intelligence purposes, but it doesn't really get into anything that's very private. I think it was often confused with the idea of actually intercepting communications, at least with respect to inside the U.S. and with U.S. citizens. Uh, the government is, cannot collect content of communications without judicial permission. Now, when the government's collecting overseas, non-Americans, those rules don't apply. And I think that offended some people. Well, um, that's, that happens to be true, but we both know that what's defined as a collection are two different things. Well, so you have one, for example, one challenge is this. Let's assume an American, we'll call him X, is communicating with someone in the Hindu Kush who's well-known as a terrorist, and so they're targeting that person. The rule, and this has been upheld by the court as consistent with our Constitution, the rule has been why you cannot target the American if the American happens to call a number of someone who is a target and they wind up talking about something significant, then you can target that. And so they've tweaked the rules a little bit, but I would say that, again, as compared to the private sector, the degree of supervision is vastly more uh, intensive for the government. Michael Chertoff, thank you very much for joining us. Good to be here. And that's off. Wait, there's more. The Economist Radio is running a survey, and we would like you to be a part of it. So please stop what you're doing. Get off your exercise bike, go in from your run, pull the car over to the shoulder of the road, and go to radio.economist.com survey and take our survey. And let us know what you think about our podcast that we deliver to you and what we don't and could. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist and find us online at economist.com. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is the E-C-O-N-O-M-I-S-T. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. 
From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.